This is the Roaring Elephant podcast from the 17th of January 2017. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave and here is my co-host Jon. Hello Dave. Hello Jon. Welcome. Thank you. I guess we should say Happy New Year again, even though we did the last episode, but kind of faked that one, didn't we? Yeah, we recorded that one pre-New Year. This is the first one post-New Year. Yeah. It's all very confusing. But yes, yeah, For Happy some reason, New Year. Dave didn't want to record on the 1st of January. Don't ask me. No, just no. <laughs> but it was, good. it was a good time nonetheless. So I hope our listeners all had a thoroughly enjoyable Christmas, New Year, Festivus, and otherwise enjoyable holiday period. So do I. I mean, I've been working all through the holiday weeks, but uh, that's how I like it. It's very quiet at the office. (laughs) Fair enough. So we actually have some interesting things to announce this episode, do we not? Uh, Yep. Well, you already teased a little bit about it last episode. So uh, this one is the first go live episode of the exciting Roaring Elephant Raffle. Indeed. Okay, so first of all, um, to get more information about the raffle, if you go to the RoaringElephant.org website, look on the right-hand side, you'll see a list of a small list of pages with things like About, Your Roaring Hosts, Contact Form, Press Kit, and a new page, Raffle Rules. Um, so, you know, we've been doing this for a little while, and we've been thinking of sort of ideas as to how we can broaden our audience. and one of the ways that we can do that is, of course, to get you, our listeners, to uh, broaden it for us by <laughs> espousing the virtues of the Roaring Elephant. Um, but we wanted to reward our audience for this. And uh, we've also had organizations contact us, you know, wanting to sponsor us um, or somehow provide uh, input into the podcast. Now, I, I don't listen to a huge number of podcasts, but uh, one of the things that uh, I'm very aware of is advertising in things like these is an incredible kind of turn off. Um, you know, whether it's things like, you know, 15 second ads in yeah, YouTube. Hold it right there, Dave. I have to do the 15 minute spot now. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. We, we didn't really want to start putting adverts in the podcast. It just, it didn't really feel like the kind of thing, the, the kind of road we wanted to go down. Um, but if organizations want to, um, you know, want to support us or want to do something uh, for us, then we're all for it. So we came up with a kind of compromise, which is that um, something that an organization would want to give to us, we would give away to our listeners. Um, I think that sounds perfectly fair. How about you, Jan? I think that's very, very community open source minded of us. Absolutely. So the idea is that uh, we bought these two things together. So the uh, organisations that want to uh, want to support us as a podcast, and the uh, the need to further broaden our audience in this this one glorious opportunity to run a raffle. So we have the first uh, raffle starting, which has uh, been sponsored by Hortonworks, and they're giving away a free ticket to the DataWorks Summit. Say ooh. Ooh. That's right. So the DataWorks (laughs) Summit in Munich um, 
That's so not good for the... folks. Huh? Good for the background noise. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yon, Yon is our new sound effects machine. Um, so it's a free ticket uh, of entry uh, for the DataWorks Summit in Europe, in Munich. Um, and this will give you access to all of the breakout sessions, um, the crash, crash courses, the Hadoop Summit parties, the birds of a feather sessions, all the keynotes and all that sort of thing. You, you'll get a, a free little swag bag as part of the uh, DataWorks Summit when you when you actually register on site. Um, so thanks very much to Hortonworks for providing that um, that. Uh, little prize so now about the raffle itself um obviously you can go to the uh, the raffle rules page that explains it all um in nitty gritty detail but i'll try and summarize it for you essentially what we're trying to do is get more people talking about the roaring elephant podcast uh, and to reward that um that extra uh, that extra discussion so for each um, episode where we're running this raffle, and this episode is the first, um, you can do something like share a tweet about the episode or about the Roaring Elephant podcast um, in general. Now, we uh, we track the use of the at Hadoopcast uh, Twitter handle. Um, so if you make a make use of that during your uh, your Twitter frenzy, um, then you will get a single entry, a single raffle entry into uh, the raffle for this particular prize. Um, there are, however, other social media channels that you could use. Um, you could put a video up on YouTube. You could do a, a blog post. Um, you could. What else could you do, Jan? You get Facebook. I even mentioned Tinder to uh, Dave, but he kind of didn't see how that, how that would work. I, I would be interested in the <laughs> Tinder profile for Roaring Elephant. Um, actually, no, no. <laughs> um, but you know, Snapchat. Um, yeah. Oh, what's the uh, what's the um, the short video thing that just uh, that's that's rolling up a Vine? See if you can a get a, get something into Vine before it dies. <laughs> um, but you know, anything where you share something uh, about Roaring Elephant, preferably positive. Um, the, you know, trying to expand the uh, the listener uh, base of the Roaring Elephant podcast. Um, let us know about it. Obviously, Twitter, we can very easily track um, people that are uh, actually using the at Hadoopcast Twitter handle. Um, if you are making your uh, entry or your social entry through another method, then you'll need to put a comment into the um, the comment section of the episode um, with the link to your particular entry. So if you do an Instagram post uh, that shows you talking about uh, the Rolling Elephant podcast at a particular event, um, then that's all great, but you need to tell us about it uh, through that comment. Yeah, and important, use the comments below every episode. Don't use the feedback form. Very true. So again, this is about getting publicity. Indeed. And I, and I would like our listeners to give us more comments on our episodes. Yep, feedback is always welcome. We do yes. get uh, uh, we do get a handful of um, you know direct emails and and that sort of thing through the feedback form, but we're always looking for more feedback. Tell us yeah. what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And the thing um, with the feedback form is it doesn't give a, it doesn't make a conversation happen. It's just we get the email, we reply to the email, and that's about it. If it's on the on the um, uh, posts below the post itself, I'm hoping more people kind of say yes, this is true, this is not true. So we get more input. Yep. So just to make one sort of little thing clear, again, make sure you read the uh, the uh, the raffle rules page. But 
essentially for each channel you use, each social media channel you use, you can get a single entry. So if you tweet uh, about Hadoopcast for one particular episode three times, that only gets you one entry. Uh, however, if you were to send a tweet, uh, publish a YouTube video, and um, do an Instagram post, that would get you three entries. Okay, hope that makes it clear. It's all kind of lined up in the uh, uh, in the rules. We tried to make it so that people could actually get multiple entries, but we also tried to make sure that we didn't just get people sending thousands of um, thousands of tweets and, and trying to expect that they would get a thousand entries because that would yeah. be crazy. We also don't want to be accused of uh, engendering spam. Indeed, indeed. So hopefully we've we've struck a uh, a middle ground there, and and I'm kind of interested to see what sort of interesting uh, exercises our listeners get up to in terms of uh, trying to promote Roaring Elephant. Uh, I look forward to. Um, I, I think there will be a special mention um, for the most innovative uh, mentioning of Roaring Elephant. Oh, I definitely. Think that, that, that definitely needs to happen. But uh, other than that, yeah, we look forward to your entries. And, uh, yes, very best of luck to whoever wins the uh, DataWorks Summit free pass, courtesy of Hortonworks. Thank you, Hortonworks. Yeah, and maybe just for the practical side of it, so we'll be running this raffle over three episodes. Yep. And we will announce the winner... On what date? Let me see. The 28th of February. That's the one where the winner will get announced. That gives you more than a month time to book your packy bags, book your travel and stuff. So we hope that's sufficient time. Yeah. All right. So let us know if you enjoy this kind of raffle idea. If you don't, we'll stop doing it. (laughs) Or if you do, we'll do more of them. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So, that's the raffle. The cat's out of the bag. The yeah. uh, the raffle tickets are open and available. So, uh, yeah, best of luck. And thank you, Hortonworks. Indeed. So, fancy talking about some news? <sighs> nah, you go first. Okay, I'll go first. Um, so, I th- I felt this, uh, this fortnight was a bit of a slow news fortnight. So... I don't have anything truly revolutionary, uh, but I do have a few things that I thought were quite interesting. So the first, uh, I'm going to merge the first two stories together because um, they're all of a very similar vein. Uh, Obviously, we had our our bold predictions episode um, going back uh, a couple of weeks now, and uh, it seems that the the mainstream media is a bit uh, slower with their bold predictions um, (laughs) as they're only sort of starting to come out now. So uh, the first one is uh, a Tech Republic article. Uh, in fact, Tech Republic seems to be um, providing the bulk of my articles this uh, <laughs> this episode. But uh, it's it's six big data trends to watch in 2017. Um, now, I think the I won't sort of list out all of them, but one of the ones that I thought, or one of the ones I thought was particularly interesting, was. Um, the, their third prediction, which is the use of more dark data, and this yeah, is I thought we were going to talk about that one because it's just crawling through the article. We just Dave just gave me the links of his uh, things that he's going to mention today, and that was the one that I fell on. 
Yeah, I, I've never heard that term before. And yeah. when you when you actually read it, it makes perfect sense. But so dark data for those that don't know, uh, which included me up until about uh, you know two hours ago, um, is information that's contained in paper based documents, photos, videos, other corporate assets that are lying dormant in vaults and storage closets, but could be u- put to use in big data aggregation. So essentially, it's data that is in a format where it's not easily ingested um it's in a it's in a storage mechanism that yeah requires um a higher degree of processing to to bring it on board um so for for paper based documents obviously there's there's scanning optical character recognition um that, that can be applied to it and other things like that photos obviously you know need to be scanned and then analyzed uh videos you know if they're stored in um, some other method that's not easily digitally accessible. They need to be digitized and then uh, made available through for, for some sort of processing. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's, and it's not, it does make sense because if, if organizations have been going down this path for a while, a lot of the easily consumable data, they'll already be pulling in or making use of in some way, shape or form. And, you know, you can see, the, the sort of the road, the progression is moving towards getting data that is actually more difficult to get hold of, where there's still information and there's still um, value there. It's just the uh, the barrier to entry is higher on documents that you've got to go and do a, a significant amount of processing on. Yeah, it does seem to be a, a known term because it's actually being defined by Gardner. Yeah, yeah. So how can we have missed that? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I thought I, I thought that was kind of interesting, and yeah. the, the others there are some of them are are quite um, quite close to some of our predictions, and some of them are a bit different. Um, but I thought that was the one that particularly stood out for me on that one. Um, the other one, the the second one is a, a, a datamation article, which is on the uh, the five big data predictions for twenty seventeen. So they have one less. Obviously, there's one less important thing happening. Um, and uh, the one that I would pick out from here is the um, is actually their first one, which is understanding the value of long-lived and short-lived data. Um, and I kind of I'm not so sure that I agree with this. Actually, um, they they seem to suggest that um, certain data actually there is no there's no real need to keep it. Um, beyond a certain period of time, um, and it, it's about understanding the, the sort of the value of that data at yeah. that point in time, and, and you know sometimes it's not needed after that. Uh, I don't know that I really, I don't know that I really agree with that. I part yeah. of me, a significant part of me, thinks that how can you know the value of that data uh, until you've had you know a reasonable chunk of it to be able to go back and dive into. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I firmly disagree with this because, I mean, if this was true, then the whole big data thing would never have happened. Yeah. Any kind of machine learning prediction you want to do is going to be based on past uh, data. And the more data you have, the better your prediction is going to be. Yes, exactly. of course, if you have a billion records having a billion and two, that won't make a big difference. But you'll never get to a billion if you don't keep your, val- uh, your data 
long term. Yeah. Now, there is one other thing. There's certain data you do not want to keep long term because of certain legislation things. Sure. Uh, I know the thing about emails in the US, for example, you're, uh, you have to keep it for a certain time and then every company shreds them as fast as possible for any kind of liability issues. So yep. that's one thing that might be fitting in here, but I don't think that's what he means here. No, no, that's right. Um, so that was, th- th- those were the two sort of, uh, two articles on sort of big data trends for 2017. Mm-hmm. The other, the other point I would probably make is that, uh, both articles, um, significantly call out, um, cloud involvement. Um, the uh, Tech Republic one is movement to the cloud, and uh, the uh, the Datamation one actually calls it the public cloud juggernaut, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite amusing. But yeah, so there's there's some interesting sort of views there. Some of which I agree with, some of which I disagree with. Interested to uh, to see what you all think about the uh, about some of the trends. Do you think there is something there that uh, that they've missed, or something that uh, that you think they've got spot on? Mm-hmm. No, obviously I agree with the uh, cloud thing. I mean, I wouldn't have moved to the Azure environment if I didn't. Indeed. But uh, I do want to, uh, you to promise me now that this was the last of the prediction uh, <laughs> articles you dig up. Okay, we've, we've done this, been there, <laughs> no more. As long as we don't have another slow, uh, a slow news month, then yeah, sure. <laughs> Always hedging his bets. Absolutely. All right, over to you. Okay, my first article is about Spark. Obviously, I always talk about Spark, it seems. But this is a really, really nice one. I've actually seen it pop up in a couple of uh, uh, email gatherer thingies I'm subscribed to. It's called 24-7 Spark Streaming on Yarn in production. It's by uh, Bernard Schaefer from Innovex, is a ger- which is a German company that does uh, digital transformation stuff and things like that. And it's actually a nice article. It's long. It's a blog post. And it details a 24-7 Spark streaming solution in Yarn, top to bottom. Mm-hmm. You have little graphs in there, what's, what, what he wants to do with it, why he does it. You have the full scripts of how he starts the things and all of the things that they struggled with. Because Spark streaming is, well, it works and... At the end of the article, I'm just going to quote him there. I think I highlighted it for easy retrieval. He does say, overall, in Spark Streaming, we have found a stable, flexible, and highly scalable streaming engine. At the time of writing, the client has a variety of Spark Streaming applications running in production. So they're happy with what they did. But at the beginning of the post, and that's, of course, the important part, he says, uh, one can tell that streaming itself has been retrofitted into Apache Spark. Many of the default configurations are not suited for 24-7 streaming applications, and the same applies to Yarn, which has was, which was not primarily designed with long-running applications in mind, which is true. I mean, yeah. everybody who played with this knows this. But then he goes through the whole thing, explaining the use case, what he wants to do, and it's a relatively simple use case. It uses a Hadoop environment with Spark and HBase for uh, storage pretty standard all of that but then he just goes into the details okay we want to have windowing you want to have partitions you want to have uh, back pressure applied and how do you define how much back pressure you need and how should my memory settings be he really goes into certain details here and he has nice graphs with monitoring and how you can monitor that thing looking at log files it's a very complete thing uh, detailing what he did why he did it and what worked and didn't work and it's a very nice yeah, read. If anybody's looking at uh, doing anything with near real-time streaming, and Spark Streaming is a candidate in there, 
I would really advise people to read this. At the end, it does give a couple of links to articles where they got their inspiration from. Uh, but basically, that's the whole thing. There's a lot of information out there, but it's very fragmented. And this one really puts it all into one big post. It's uh, very brilliant. I really like it. Nice, nice. I, I think there's there's definitely not enough material that that goes into that sort of depth. We the the other example of something vaguely similar would be the the article we came up with last year. We dug up last year on the um, the Singapore public metro. Mm-hmm. Where that that yep. also went into a you know a, a decent level of depth as to exactly what they were doing. I think these articles are really really I find really really useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe it's a trend. Maybe this thing these things have come to a maturity level where people are confident and relaxed enough to really put it out like this. So, yeah, it could be. I hope uh, so. Very, uh, I recommend you everybody reads this. Uh, this is good stuff. And it's from Germany, so it's quality included, right? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. So my next one is, um, it's not directly um, Hadoop-related, um, although with a lot of my... Um, uh, my work towards uh, Apache Metron, um, it's certainly becoming more and more of a big data focused area. And this is um, uh, an article from medium.com, uh, which is uh, learning from a year of security breaches. Um, and the, I mean, we talked about in our big bold predictions that, uh, you know, we, we believe that uh, 2017 is possibly going to be the year when there is a, a very, very significant security breach even uh, eclipsing um, some of the ones that have already happened in 2016 um, and this is, I find this a kind of interesting article because although it's not directly big data related um, a lot of what they're talking about is um, you know, big data concepts so for example um, they talk about uh, you know centralized logging um, sort of being a, a key component of what they're doing. Uh, but they also talk about the fact that um, uh, being very aware of um, user privacy and what you log and how relevant um, the long-term storage would be in in, in sort of uh, in the case there is a breach. So balancing the retention period of the data that you store um, to protect the, the user privacy um, is sort of a... Uh, you know, a balance that you'll need to set, um, as well as obviously applying uh, the correct um, security policies around um, this security environment as well. Um, the other things are about finding, um, you know, finding the root cause of a breach. It's all it's often kind of assumed that you will always find the the root cause. It's not necessarily the case, which is quite uh, I certainly find quite scary um you know with enough data it's always kind of assumed that you'll always be able to find the root cause of a particular condition and you know it's not it's just not necessarily going to be the case you're not always going to know exactly how um you know a particular scenario came about uh, but what you need to know is what the impact of it is and, and how you can actually uh how you can actually attack that how you can deal with it yeah, I like his uh, paragraph on the root cause uh, analysis. <laughs> With the root cause, a mitigation could be we wipe this laptop. Without the root cause, a root cause, it will be we wipe all laptops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, 
And there's there's some so some other th- sort of things here about um, credential theft is still the lowest hanging fruit. Um, you know, uh, so simple things like avoiding password reuse, um, and uh, you know, trying to use single sign-on uh, two-step authentication or multi-factor authentication um, mm-hmm. as much as possible, um, and also sort of insider. Inside of threats, a lot of people think that uh, information security is all about, you know, protecting from hackers outside. When actually, um, the bulk of threats actually uh, typically come from within the organisation rather than from without. Um, so there's, I I found this like a really a really useful, really interesting article, um, just to think about different areas of of. Um, sort of security breaches and information security generally. Um, and uh, I think uh, it's going to become a lot more relevant as uh, people move more and more into joining the worlds of cybersecurity and big data. Yeah, and it's also a world that's very much in flux as well, because, for instance, the, his first point about centralized logging makes everything better. Uh, true, but I think that insisting on centralized logging today is not longer possible because more and more of these systems are being decentralized across the world. Getting your logging centralized in one point of the world, that's just not uh, feasible anymore. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think this is already a little bit dated uh, by the time he wrote it. Uh, I mean, I've been doing some research about the fourth industrial revolution, Mm -hmm. the data revolution. And one thing that's uh, coming up now are so-called cyber-physical systems, which are computers just making networks amongst themselves without we even being aware that they exist. Paraphrasing hugely here, but in those kind of scenarios, there is no way you're going to have centralized logging anymore. And you need to have other tools available. So anyway, whatever you can do, you should do, of course. Yeah, definitely. I also like the fact that he has at the top of the article, it's a nine-minute read. (laughs) (laughs) Did you time yourself? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't actually, but I will now. Although, will rereading it should be quicker, right? Yeah, but I mean, if you if you if you go quicker, does that mean you didn't read it well enough? You have to do it again. And if you read too slow, does it mean you're stupid or something? I'm not sure. I like this kind of extra meta tagging, dear. <laughs> uh, I think it, I think everybody should have have long it's going to take to read. That's the first time I saw that. That was mentioned. All right, over to you then. Over to me. Uh, oh yeah, my second article. Do you ever have these articles where you start reading, you think, oh my God, wow. And then you start reading and you say, oh, really? And then you say, ah, ever had that happen? Uh, not quite in that order, but I'm guessing <laughs> that you have. Yeah, because I stumbled upon an article from uh, Hortonworks, actually, yeah, from December 20th called Spark SQL Ranger and LLAP via Spark Drift Server for BI, BI Scenarios to Provide Row Column Level Security and Masking. Okay, that was a title that didn't say anything, too much buzzwords in there, so I didn't even read that one until just now. But it starts with explaining that Spark has very limited security, mm-hmm. which is true. Basically, if you can read a file, then Spark can read the file and you can do whatever you want with it. You can you can read two files, you can merge together, and if that means you have now PII involved data, that's fine. Spark can't hold you back. And the first part of this says, well, we're going to use LLAP to enforce security in Spark. 
There's a second, the second paragraph that talks about that. And the one thing I'm going to read out is LLAP is a collection of long-lived demons. I knew that. That works in tandem with HDFS data node services. I didn't know that. I always saw LLAP as something that was totally ingrained into Hive. And it also says it in this uh, article. At the moment, Apache Hive is the most built-in integration with LLAP. But it reads like LLAP is a lot broader than that. And they want to use Spark through LLAP to access the data sources. So at that point, that was my aha moment. This is interesting. One, LLAP is a lot more powerful than I think I thought it was. And secondly, I can actually do ranger policy enforcement through LLAP in Spark. Wow. But then when I kept on reading, it just ended up that if you want to access Hive SQL data from Spark using the Spark SQL, yes, then you can use LLAP and ranger policies. So a bit of a ambivalent here. Do I misread the article? Or is this just a marketing blurb and I got, well, what's the polite word of saying that? Sucked in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it, yeah, I, if, I think it's a, it's more of a forward-looking um post about I mean, definitely the, the detail there is is as far as i'm aware is is that exactly as you laid out i think the idea is that uh you know llap will reach further into the ecosystem but as you say right now it, it's really just it's it's hive that's that's doing the the most sort of leveraging of it yeah but they do still put the thing in there llap works in tandem with HDFS data nodes. I've never seen that. Every kind of schematic I saw was just LAB being part of the uh, execution plan that Hive Server 2 invents for your query, which does a bit of test and a bit of LAP. And I've never seen HDFS. It's it actually going directly into HDFS. Yeah, I believe it does. That's uh, something to look forward to. Anyway, this was an article that Started reading with a lot of glee and joy, but then kind of ended up at a, as a downer. Oh. Yeah. I was disappointed. I want to share that with the world. Fair enough. Well, let's, let's actually make the rest of the world far happier by talking about something a bit more positive, which is, of course, people making money. <laughs> um, <laughs> So my my last two articles are both fairly short ones, um, but the, the the first one is just a really good example of um, how you can use big data, and this in particular is about um, application developers um, and how they can use big data to improve. Um, Improve their user experience, improve the user experience of their applications, and ultimately um, lead to more revenue. Um, and so, this uh, this article again, another Tech Republic article, um, goes through um, a fairly high level um, about the, the sort of the various steps and the various um, things that people can do to get more information about how their users are using their apps. Um, so, for example, things like uh, you might find that uh, only twenty to thirty percent of the people actually download the app actually use it. You know, you know. So why why are people downloading apps that aren't using them? 
And if you do have people um, that are using them and you find that, uh, you know, again, a smaller portion of those proportion of those users are actually using the more advanced features, um, you know, how do you, how do you increase that? How do you, how do you improve the number of um, users that are actually, you know, upgrading to paid versions of the app or um, adding value add pieces to it or, Know, find out how people are using the app. What areas of the app are people spending most of their time in? So it's primarily focused around um, sort of apps, uh, mobile apps, and that sort of thing. But I honestly don't see any reason why it couldn't, this couldn't be applied to um, any application at all. If you're an application developer and you want to find out more about um, how users are using your apps, it's it's kind of interesting that it, it it's um, it's really sort of something that we almost expect to happen by default in the mobile world. Um, I don't know how many people are aware of it, but, you know, the majority of applications on um, on your phone, you know, report information about um, usage, whereas in the um, you know, third-party ISV application world, we're, we're not really used to applications reporting um, usage statistics. Uh, usually there's some sort of opt-in, opt-out mm-hmm. thing when you first install an application. And my guess would be that most people don't opt into those kind of things. But, um, you know, if, if, if even if only sort of 10% of users opt into that, that could be a significant mine of information. And uh, anything that you can do to make your application more relevant to the users has got to be uh, a benefit to everybody. Yeah, it's obviously more accepted for mobile apps to do this because mobile apps they do have always always on networking basically. Yeah. Any application you have on a, a PC somewhere, well, you might have network, but do you have internet access, uh, connectivity? You don't know. Yeah. So that's one thing, of course. But do they only look at monetization in pure dollar value or also in, for example, public relations or publicity uh, value? Because if I can put a, an app out there that makes everybody talk about me, I don't care if the app gets used, they get some publicity out of it. And that's also a monetization kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, they don't really go into that amount of depth. As I say, it's a fairly light article. I just think it's a really, it's a really nice sort of use case. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think both both of them are, are particularly interesting. I mean, for for me, a, a perfect example of that sort of application was uh, I, I enjoy the uh, the odd computer game now and again. Uh, I'm a particular fan of the the Fallout series of, of games, and before the uh, the release of Fallout Four. Um, Bethesda released a mobile game called yep. Fallout Shelter uh, that was free to download and, you know, relatively simple application at the time. And it was designed really just to tide people over and get people talking or thinking about Fallout before the latest release came. Now, as it turns out, that's been uh, an incredibly successful, both as a marketing tool and also, I believe, as you know, a decent chunk of revenue generation from mm-hmm. add-ons that people can buy uh, within the app. So I think there's, there's definitely a case for, for both, uh, both of those areas. Um, as I say, the, the, applica- the, uh, the article doesn't really go into that okay. level of depth, but I think it's definitely, a, definitely both areas are relevant. Yeah, it also goes on to positive uh, thinking because... Not all apps are created to be used. A lot of apps in these uh, app stores are actually created to be on, but invisible, just to track you. 
Well, yeah, I mean that that yes. happens. That happens a lot. Let's uh, face it. A lot of those free-to-play things and whatever Wi-Fi analyzers and stuff. There's a lot of visual advertising in those things, which, okay, it's free to play. You have to pay somewhere, so I can yep. accept that thing. But also then, if you look at the running processes on your phones, you find things that are weird. On my PC as well, you install a certain application, you uninstall the application because, well, it wasn't what you wanted, so you take it away anyway. And months later, you see a PC going slower. You take a look at the processes running, and there's some stuff left behind. So... On mobile, that also is a lot higher, uh, a lot higher percentage of users, I think. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Oh well, making money from mobile phones, who'd have thunk? <laughs> All right. So next one to you. Next one to me. That's another nice one. Uh, I put the downer one in the middle just so we everybody forget it faster. This one is on the Confluent blog. It's by Ben Stopford. It's called The Data Dichotomy. It's a hard word to, 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 to say. <laughs> Rethinking the way we treat data and services. And it's big data related, but not only big data. It also goes into the computation that's around it, about the application design, software design, and stuff like that. And the subtitle is uh, The Data Dichotomy. Data systems are about exposing data. Services are about hiding it. And this is something I've actually encountered in my uh, my day-to-day work, where on the one hand, you have this uh, move to the cloud and move to microservices, which means you have to encapsulate all your units of computing so that they're all self-sufficient, doing their own thing. And that, of course, means that you have to kind of black box this stuff. Mm-hmm. Data, and definitely big data, does exactly the reverse. You've put something in a database, the database will try to expose it as much as possible because you want to have it used by everything. And because of the microservices, I, I, I can't do uh, justice to the article. I really recommend everybody reads this. But he just goes across the, through the whole idea of how the software development world is kind of clashing with the data world on how these uh, ways of working don't gel well together. The black boxings how do you call this uh, yeah microservice approach of the compute side and then the big data make the data available to everybody and as much data as possible all the time mm. it's a rather long article it's a lot of graphics in there as well it makes it digestible and it's a, a nice way of looking at this i've actually sent it to a customer of mine who had who was kind of struggling with this and give him some uh, some back in some some context, some information around the whole. You're not alone in this. <laughs> nice. Hmm. Do you think that's? Do you think that's really? Do you think it's a a situation that's going to become more widespread? Oh yeah, definitely. Because uh, he ends with something that's uh, he's, his solution for this is something he calls stateful stream processing, where everything is event driven or even message driven, if you like. And yeah, I mean, one of the most uh, known technologies to jump on this bandwagon is uh, Kafka with their mm-hmm. Kafka Stream solution, which basically takes a microservices approach and a yeah, kind of streaming data across those things to have both uh, good of both worlds. 
but uh, yeah, it's the first approach that I've seen. It's not uh, totally good. There's still some things that don't work too well with it, I think. Yeah. It's definitely a step in the right direction. And I'm hoping that things like uh, NiFi and uh, oh, there's a new thing on the, on the market now. It's on Amazon. I forget what the name is. Stream something, something. Stream sets? Yeah, stream sets. Those are the, all of these things are really, that, that's kind of the new technologies coming up these days. Yeah, and they're all kind of pushing into this corner of the of the technology. So uh, yeah, I definitely see this happening a lot more. So it's a nice read. It's a very nicely written article, very nicely put together. So it's an enjoyable read. Nice. All right, and my final news article um, hits all of the major buzzwords. It's got some <laughs> IoT. It's got some big data. It's got value chain. Everyone loves a bit of value chain. Um, I see no value in that. Yeah. So it's actually <laughs> the re- the reason that I picked this particular article is because there's there's some kind of interesting statistics in it. So it's really all about. Um, it's just one particular example of how big data can actually deliver value to an organization. Um, and as this is our episode talking about use cases, um, I thought that it was particularly apropos. Um, but this particular article is talking about um, the fact that, let me get, make sure I get the, uh, the the right statistic here, 45% of worldwide energy is consumed by buildings. Um which seems incredibly high, um, but I can also completely believe that. So they actually talk about they've, they've worked with um, a large organization, Siemens, um, that has 300,000 buildings around the globe, and the company estimates that they can uh, take out approximately $140 million per year in energy costs and 10,000 million tons per year of um, carbon emissions. So the, the really the sort of the highlight here is that the savings that you can make just by um, you know, collecting IoT data um, and optimizing the way that you manage your buildings um, is phenomenal. And you know, the larger an organization you are, the more buildings and infrastructure you have, the the larger the saving. Um, and they talk about a couple of examples, like you know, smart elevators, and um, obviously, you know, things like um, heat, uh, heating, lighting, um, cooling, ventilation, all those sorts of things are the are the common ones. Um, but they they talk about the sort of the steps um, that you would go through for this kind of thing, and the initial one is to actually um, do something that you, where you can get you know a relatively significant return on investment uh, as short as possible time. So something like um, you know predictive maintenance use case where you can um, potentially reduce significantly the, the costs of operating um, you know buildings um, facilities. Then actually uh, using continuing to use that data and add to that data um, to further optimize you know, how those buildings are running. So you know only operating uh, lighting or cooling during certain peak times and actually you know, ramping it down earlier than uh, than you would do normally or ramping it up um, ahead of time so that it's ready um, when people arrive in the building or whatever it might be. Um, and then the the final piece, which I find kind of interesting, is the potential monetization of this data, um, f- finding out what uh, 
you know how people are moving around buildings i'm not quite sure how that works in terms of facilities management but it's it's kind of interesting nonetheless so uh, you know i just think that um Smart buildings are probably another area that we're going to hear more about this year and you know, smart infrastructure generally. Um, so I think this is you know, part, it's just another part of the IoT revolution. Yeah, it's not a particularly new use case, I think. I've been hearing people doing this uh, for some time, but it gets more and more applied, I guess. But I think that the main thing working against this is the fact that energy is very cheap today. True, but 100. I mean, from an organization like Siemens, 140 million a year that's a yeah, pretty significant but, saving, yeah, yeah. But that's a saving in energy, but then don't add the cost of adding all of this IoT infrastructure. Well, yeah, I, there has to be, <laughs> I, it can't cost 140 million though, can it? Really? I have no idea. I mean, if we <laughs> want to do IoT well, you need a lot of sensors out there, you need a lot of equipment to measure all that stuff. It's not cheap. I mean, IoT has come a very long way, but it's still evolving very quickly, and the the components are still getting cheaper all the time. We definitely have not hit the the rock bottom of that uh, technology uh, curve, if you want. So I'd be interested to see them do the same thing, but add to it, okay, you save X amount of money. How much do you have to spend to save that money? And basically, the reason that nobody is doing this in droves at the moment is because apparently there's not that big an issue, difference between the two. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, I know we're not doing predictions, but I think that what we're going to see this year is um, a more of a push between actually increasing that delta making sure there is a, a you know a decent roi that the number of devices i've seen even you know just in the first couple of days of this uh, this year um people driving towards you know lower uh, lower cost um sensors and devices that you can retrofit yep. to yep. existing environments existing buildings it's kind of a, it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting space and i think that it's 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 yeah. got to that return on investment has got to be there otherwise there's just no point in doing it i don't think it's there yet and another thing i'm just thinking about is that this is mostly true for buildings where people are present offices true there's also this move these days of uh, the new kind of working, new style of working, where most people work from home or on the road or wherever you want to work. You don't go to the office that much anymore. If I look around my, uh, the, where I live here, a lot of office buildings are empty, not being used, and they're not using any <laughs> energy either, so that's a good thing perhaps. But <laughs> if you're looking at a typical factory floor, I think those things, just from the point of view of safety and regulations, are already pretty well equipped with sensors all around, and I think those there's not that much you can squeeze out of there anymore. It'll still be something probably. Office buildings seem to be the cash cow for this, but yeah. they're being used less and less as well, so... Maybe the, the the technology will be ready for a problem that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> when everybody's working remotely. Yeah, I mean, look at you and me. This is true. This is true. But then we can live in smart, equipped homes. And of course, all new kind of buildings are being built with uh, zero carbon uh, emission total to be energy yeah. neutral and stuff like that. So I'm not entirely sure if that's a real IoT-driven thing, though, because that's usually about uh, passive cooling, passive heating, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And 
because the thing is, if you have to monitor it, that means you have to spin up a couple of servers, which will take extra energy again. If you can just build <laughs> the thing passively CO2 neutral or whatever you want to call it, that is actually a better step. So I'm a bit skeptical, of, skeptical about this use case, to be honest. And maybe that has already come through with what I'm talking about here. <laughs> because I've heard this one the first time I was thinking, uh, looking at big data, that's five years ago. This was already a thing. Yeah, and yep, there's some, there's a couple of model homes and model factories and model offices where this is getting shown off as a u- possible use case and stuff. And the predictive maintenance thing, yep, that one I believe. I mean, the uh, elevator thing—that's one that just works. Yep, obviously. But the energy specific uh, attendant uh, thing that this article is talking about, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. Mm, Jan is yet to be convinced. Yes. We'll see. And I'm such Sorry. a non-skeptical person, usually. <laughs> yeah. And that's all for the news this week. We'll be back after the break. See you then. Now, usually our faithful listeners would expect a topic now, but uh, Dave and I had a looked uh, at the timer on my recording equipment here, and uh, would you believe we're about 45 minutes in already? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so we have a choice of giving you a two-hour episode, which is, I think, a bit too much of uh, Dave and Jon goodness, or, and that's one we've chosen, we were we have a very nice subject we're going to talk about nice topic but we're going to keep it for next time and make this show a 100% news topic show how does that sound let us know let us know if you like episodes that are all about the news and uh, the Dave and Yon goodness Uh, I do believe there is too much of a good thing it's like eating too much ice cream Um, there's never too much ice cream yeah we're gonna we're gonna put a pin in it here We'll come back to you um, with the topic of choice next time. And uh, yeah, and uh, that's that. all we have time for today, sadly. We do hope you enjoyed this serving of bite sized big data, even though it's just a new show, but I think it was good. We will be back in two weeks' time with a new episode with the topic we were planning to do today. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information about the podcast, send us your feedback and questions via the feedback form, and also through email you can reach us on podcast at roaringelephant.org. Please send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and feedback you might have. Also, as we mentioned uh, at the beginning of this uh, episode, do not forget our raffle for the Hortonworks giveaway of the summit ticket. We are looking forward to all your shenanigans, everything you get up to, and the ensuing Roaring Elephant publicity storm we'll get from that, of course. Absolutely. And don't forget, the ticket just entitles you entry um, to the event. doesn't include your flights or your travel or your accommodation. You'll have to book all of that yourself. Uh, but it does give you access to the event. And it's a very worthwhile event, if I say so myself. That's it for today. We'll see you again in two weeks' time. Until then, my name is Jon. And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Goodbye. See you then.